And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And I I would say again that this is my favorite part of the show, but it seems a bit self-indulgent. Uh, because the, the interviews are always my favorite parts of the show, but this time I'm getting interviewed essentially. And I, I teased this on the show, but we were having a conversation in the office yesterday and, um, the subject of price gouging and oil came up and, and, um, actually our oldest employee, Trevor, that was the, he was the first one that ever started with us. It was the wife and wife and husband show until Trevor saved, showed up and, has become indispensable. He's our head of operations, our chief operating officer, actually. And uh, we—he's not—you he, know—he didn't—he didn't spend. He's on the operations side, so he didn't spend his career studying finance and all that kind of. I mean, he's got a much better than a rudimentary knowledge in investing. But anyway, this this roundtable discussion started not just with him, but with several our other employees, even advisors, going, "Yeah, you know what is going on with energy." And I go, well, guys, I've laid this out a bunch of times. They're like, yeah, but you've laid it out with like other oil experts. And they're like, you know, we're not really getting this. We haven't studied the oil markets. And so we just kind of went through this conversation. And, you know, because there's so much talk out there about price gouging and the evil oil companies and why is oil so high. And we just went through this 45-minute discussion where I just walked them through step by step. Like, look, this is how the market works. This is what happens. So. Uh, it was actually Trevor's ID. He looked at me and he said, hey, we should we should do a show on this. You need to tell this to people because I, I know that I'm fielding questions from my friends, family members. And to tell you the truth, Zach, I don't really know how to answer them. And I said, well, shoot, let's do it. And I go, the only problem is who's going to interview me? And uh, Trevor's done a lot of these things, too. So I sat there and I went, well, that's kind of an easy question. That I question to answer. We'll have you do it. Because he is the brains of the operation. It's the, you know, he's the brains of the operations, which makes him the brains of the operation. So anyway, so Trevor, without further ado, welcome to the show, man. You you haven't, have you been on before? I have never been on, no. We've had, you were, you were, you went to the studio with me a few times when yeah, we were exactly. still going to, when we were still going to the studio, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but this is your first, this is your first time. So like, again, I, it, it feels a little self-indulgent. I bring somebody else to interview me, but, but he and I were talking, one of the points of this show originally when we started was to tackle really complex stuff, but to break it down to a level where the average investor, the average retail person could understand it. And so um, I thought I'd done that on the show, but if my own employees didn't have a good grasp of it, we probably haven't done so that good a job. So this is where I'm going to turn it over to Trevor. He's going to drive and I'll be the one answering the questions. And we're just going to walk through this discussion. We're kind of recreating the discussion we had the other day. Yeah, exactly. And, And yeah, my hope in having this segment was to just have the conversation that we have I mean, we have the benefit of working in the office together. And so, you know, in between conversations and studying the market, you know, any of us can pop in and ask questions and just the, see what's the, going on. The benefit. Yeah, the benefit. Definitely. Well, it depends on the day. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't always feel like a benefit. I mean, it really is. I mean, like you said, I get questions all the time and I try to, you know, replicate what you tell everyone here in the office. And, you know, I feel like I do an okay job doing it, but... Like you were saying, you know, oftentimes you're interviewing experts in fields and you guys start talking on these tangents and I'm sure <laughs> listeners of the show can can identify. Sometimes you guys will start using terms or, you know, statements that I've never even heard of before and go down a rabbit trail and I'm like, I need to pause on what we just you know right. discussed and then redirect just so I can gain a, a further understanding. And so, yeah, this whole oil conversation keeps coming up, right? Something that people have been talking about a lot. 
And I think it really spawns from this thought of A plus B equals C. You know, people start seeing gas prices rise Mm -hmm. more and more and more. And then they hear the reports that these oil companies are getting, you know, all time record profits. And Mm -hmm. they think that, oh, the only way that that's happening is if these oil companies are, you know, gouging the prices so that they can just line their own pockets. And we've tried to, you know, explain it on the show multiple different times and lots of different explanations. But I think that's probably a great place to start. Okay. So what, so throw the question. So I, I really want to keep it to, well, and a lot of this started from your friend that yeah. was asking you those questions, mm-hmm. right? So let's kind of, let's take it from there and kind of start from that basic question. Then we'll just work it down. And I can't remember how it really started. So you, this is where I'll let you drive it. Yeah. So uh, basically the, the first question that's a good place to start would be, how is it not price gouging when gas prices are, are rising and profits are increasing, you would think they'd be able to limit profit so that they could help, you know, the US consumer to buy gas at a cheaper price, especially as inflation's, you know, ravaging everything else in the country. Can't they lower prices to to help US, you know, consumers yeah. out? So first of all, okay, so let's start let's look at this from a legal perspective. Okay. As an officer of a company, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, the owners of the company, right? So, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, I didn't hear Biden or anybody else grousing about the fact that the new iPhone was going to be a record price of 1600 bucks, right? Somehow that's not price gouging. Why are they charging $1,600 for the iPhone? Because that's a clearing price, right? That's the price people will pay. Um, and so the situation is very much on the same on the side of oil, meaning the oil companies are not at all the ones who created the fix that we're in or the shortage of energy, Right. So why should they be the ones that pay the price for it? As a matter of fact, they're you know, if you listen to the current administration, they're public enemy number one. Right. So um, on the profitability side, if their actions and, and, and I mean this legitimately, if they were taking actions to lower the amount of profit they made or to, quote unquote, help the American consumer, that would be in direct violation of their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Right. Which is to maximize shareholder value. Right. So that I mean, that's their legal. They don't do that. They're legally liable. Okay, so they they can't act. Their job is not to act on the best interest of of the public. Their job is to act on the best interest of the shareholders. Sure. Where is the profit margin coming from? Like, why? Why are the margins so large as they are? Yeah. Okay. so a couple things. So first of all, we need to we need to separate the discussion of oil and gas. Right. So first of all, on on the side of oil, because the oil companies even the integrated ones who are refining their own stuff are throwing off record profits. Why is that? It, 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 there's, there's probably a lot of different reasons for it, but the two biggest primary reasons that, that can be extrapolated to any industry, really? For instance, um, I remember my boss telling me in 2009 that this was the greatest time to invest regardless of what earnings look like because – to make it through an 0809 scenario, companies tighten their belt, their cost structure goes down, right? So when things return to normal, they're probably going to be spitting out higher than normal margins, right? Because they're not counting on, you know, it's like in our business, there's a certain amount of growth to our AUM that we're looking at per year, right? If that growth doesn't materialize, it's probably going to change some of the decisions we make, right? So but so let, if we start at the most basic part of it, looking at the oil side, th- the profitability of the oil companies 
you know, if you look at the majority of last year, oil did not average 130, right? It averaged, I'd have to go back and look, but I mean, I bet you the average is probably right around 95, maybe yeah, probably between around. 90 to 100. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you had 110 barrel of oil back in 2014. You had 146 back in 07. So this is not even close to crazy, right? Mm-hmm. It's at the higher end of the range. But then if you step back and think about it in some perspective, you know, if oil topped out at 146 in 2007, now that was its peak, okay? But how many things do you know right now are trading at a 50% discount to where they were in their highs in 2007? There's not many. Sure. So this whole idea that 70 to $80 oil is expensive, it's not. Where I think the public is getting, and rightfully so, the confusement comes in because if you look at the price of gasoline, it is not reflecting $80 oil, right? right? It's reflecting much higher dollar oil. So we've got to separate the two. On the oil side of it, it's very, very simple. Well, it's simple, but you've got to go back and look at things. Okay, so 2014 was peak of shale. And when we're talking about shale, it was around, don't quote me, it's between 05 and 08 when they started figuring out horizontal fracking drilling and that opened up these huge, Canada had a huge area called the tar sands that was similar, right? Where we knew that we had these formations of oil and gas, but where traditional oil, like, you know, did you see on the movies when they hit oil? Did you ever see? Uh, yeah, it blasts out of the yeah. blasts out of the ground, yeah. What, what, what was the name? There Will Be Blood, right? You yeah. see that movie, right? Yep. Okay, so that's more of a traditional well. When, when you find a shale well, there isn't any of that, right? The, the, the oil is trapped in the sediment and the rock and all that kind of stuff, which is why they have to frack it, fracture it. They go in there and blow it up. Right. And blow the stuff back and create a void essentially in the ground. And then the oil and that gas leaks out of the sediment and creates a well. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So they really discover that the technological advances in the in the in the early to mid 2000s are what created that shale boom. And then it didn't really start hitting until after the, the financial crisis. And then if if people remember, I don't I don't know if you were paying attention, but the shale boom was huge. Like so. You know, there were boom towns in North Dakota, right? Mm-hmm. South Dakota that were popping up on everybody and their mother. I had a buddy that went back there that was running, um, making crazy money to running um, a servicing. Uh, uh, so he was providing like, you know, steel and different things that the, he was he was selling shovels, as we call it in the mining business, meaning. You know, there's two ways to make money off of a commodity explosion, right? You either invest in the commodities or you buy the things that those guys need and sell it to them. Sure. Right. So they talked about like back in the days of like the 49ers, 1849, the gold rush in California. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of guys that got wealthy selling shovels to to the guys going to look for it. Right. So anyway, there was that huge boom. And and what magnified that boom was the fact that it was coming out of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And nothing was really growing, right? We weren't in recession anymore, but we were in the doldrums. And so there was, boom, there's big opportunity. Well, <clears throat> that followed a typical oil cycle, meaning there's a saying in the oil industry that high prices fix high prices mm-hmm. and low prices fix low prices, right? The reason for that is when prices get high, as you can imagine, if you and I owned oil wells and all of a sudden oil's trading at 130 to 140, chances are we're cutting out of work at Bulwark early and we're going to be ramping up production coming out of the wells, right? So production ramps up. Then all of a sudden you go from deficits to excess and oil responds very quickly to that. And the price of oil quickly dropped from the, in 2014, you got up to 110. 
and you got down to the beginning of 2016, I think you were down in like 35, 40 range. Right. Right. So <clears throat> the other issue they had was that fracking wasn't nearly as economically viable as we had predicted it would be. Meaning um, we overestimated well lives. So uh, the, the wells, when you frack them, did not last nearly as long as we thought they would. Um, you had to refract them more often than we thought they would. You had to put in more sand and water than we thought we'd have. It just, it didn't end. So the cost structure ended up being larger. And because it was a boom, all of these oil companies took every single dollar they made selling and plugged it back into the ground. Right. And so when oil dropped, they were all dead. You had mass bankruptcies across the landscape um, it made shale much less attractive. You know, after you get a blow up in an industry like that, you know, it's really hard to go out and raise money for for a sector and an area or a type of, you know, production that just went bust. Sure. Right. Nobody wants to buy it. Um, and so and then you still had really stagnant growth at that time. And so things just kind of stagnated. So that really that really dried up investment. Uh, that and low nominal growth here in the United States, it really dried up investment. You could sit there and say tech didn't help, right? Because that was sucking all the available capital. So bottom line is over the last 10 years, you've had net negative investment in energy, okay? So that that's the first thing. And yet global oil consumption continues to rise, mm-hmm. right? So less production, more demand, you know, eventually you're going to run into a problem. Okay, so <clears throat> then as is often the case, as bad as things were in 2014, it wasn't the worst they could get, right? Then we run into COVID, but think about that. So you had, you had, and you look at shale production. It's not like it stopped. Your average cost per barrel in shale was running between 60 to 70. You can hear other people say different, but that's, that's really that range, right? Well, when oil's at 40 to 50, a lot of the guys that survived barely did because mm-hmm. they were scraping by, um, you know, a lot of them were going into debt to make it and all that kind of stuff. So at the tail end of that, they go through this harrowing six or seven year deal and then right into COVID negative and oil goes negative 37. Right. So what that did was not anybody who was still vulnerable that had not been able to really turn things around. They were done. Right. They were gone. Um, and those guys were forced to shut off production because you shut down the global economy with effectively the flick of a switch. Sure. Right. Well, their plan initially was to keep producing. They'll store it. And when things open back up, they'll release it. Well, because remember, what was it when we first started? It was two weeks to start to flatten the curve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So nobody was thinking it was going to last as long. Well, these wells keep going. And what happened is very in a very short period of time, not only was there not any consumption, but they didn't have anywhere to put the oil. Yeah, they had a tanker issue, right? They they had not enough tankers to put the oil in. Yeah, and we actually made some decent money on tankers at that time because the tankers, there literally was nowhere to put the oil. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to avoid shutting down the wells because there's an expense to that. And there's also an expense to starting them again. So had they had their druthers, they never would have shut it down. It's it, it It's pure cost, right? So as often is the case, though, it is always darkest before the dawn, right? And that's true in financial markets and it's true in life and all that kind of stuff. So when you turn, so you turned on the economy just as quickly 
I mean, not because they were rolling, cl- you know, there were different things. But you turned on the economy with the same flick of the switch that you turned it off with and then dumped $7 trillion of stimulus into the deal. And boom, oil demands shot way up, right? If you think back to it, there were people making projections at that time that said, this is it. This is peak oil. Uh, 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 demand will never return. Well, they were wrong, right? I think we're just below the record output, but it's still climbing. And we're just below the record oil demand with the majority of China shut down. So, mm-hmm. and with the disturbances with Russia and Ukraine. So you look at it and you're like, it, when thing, it, if things were normalized, you'd be above, you'd, it'd be a new record global oil demand, right? So, and I, and I'm saying all this to set the stage of going, why is it so profitable? So to survive that gauntlet they went through, right? Their stocks all got hammered, right? They had to cut dividends, which means they were retaining more cash. They paid down their debt. They laid people off, right? They got as slim as they could. Then all of a sudden, COVID turns back on, global economy starts going, and they start draining the excess supply out of those tankers, right? Really quick. And they go, well, we got to get these wells turned back on, but that takes time and money, mm-hmm. right? And so you had this deficit and then Russia, Ukraine on top of it, which further complicated things and all of those things. And, and part of it's just geopolitical turmoil. You know, people forget uh, oil embargoes are what's, what got the United States into World War II, mm-hmm. right? Embargoing Japan. Um, so this is not new, right? Um, and... When you have that scenario, so now all of a sudden oil shoots up over 100, okay? The other thing is you have to look at the administration, and I think that this gets lost in the noise. Um, I do not think Biden is as guilty as a lot of people paint him out to be about the energy crisis. Mm-hmm. Those wheels were in motion before he took over, so that that is in defense of Biden, on the flip side, he has done absolutely nothing to help. Sure. Well, and I, I definitely want to get to the political angle for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the cost structure just really quick. What What is the majority of oil companies' cost structure? So if you're saying they go to a skeleton crew, yeah. they're, they're trimming everything back. So what's the majority of what their cost is invested in that's not currently because of a lot of different reasons? But what what is their cost wrapped up in right now? And or lack thereof, that's leading to those profit margins. Yeah, and that and that's where the margins come from. So it's really so, and it's not just oil. Any type of commodity, whether it's a new, whether it's a big existing company that's make that's doing a new development, or whether it's a new company that's building up. And this is true for gold, silver, any type of commodity. The game is, can we get this in production before we run out of money? Mm-hmm. Right, because the exploration. If you just think about it. You, you got to hire people to go out in the field and you don't know what you're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have misses and hits. And now they're miss, they're, their hits are much more regular now because of, because of technology. You know, back in the days, wildcatters were literally just drilling in the ground and hoping to hit something. Mm-hmm. So it's not that imprecise now. But by far and away, you think about the permitting process they got to go through, right? You think of getting drill rigs out onto sites, getting uh, 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 employees out to these, you know, a lot of times these far-reaching sites, right? All of this is extraordinarily capital intensive. Well, because of the current political climate um, and the price of oil, it's not just the pol- the politicians. I, w- one of the biggest things that people on both sides of the argument politically are forgetting is that there are real economics in play, right? If the, if the break-even cost of shale is now 80 to 90, 
don't be surprised when nobody's drilling when the price is 73. Right. Right. Who, who, you just think about it as an investor. I'm going to go out and raise an oil fund. And and our cost to get it out of the ground is 85 to 90. The current cost is 73. Who wants in? We're guaranteeing a loss. Right. And yeah. and while we do that, we'll be increasing supply on the market, which will probably push price down even further. Even further. Right. right. Exactly. So they're sitting there going. And now, on top of that, their break-even costs have risen due to inflationary pressures. Mm-hmm. Right. You think about the steel and the commodities and all that things that goes into it. They're getting stuck there, too. So their answer has been, and I think it's correct, on a, for a couple reasons. A they've got to convince shareholders that they're not going to burn them again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you'll hear them talk about all the time is capital discipline, meaning we are not going to plug every dollar back into the ground. We realize the mistakes we made in 2014. And that's been a big part of what you've seen happen over the last 16 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. Is it these, this, these oil management teams earning the trust of shareholders back because me and a lot of other investors went, you know what? We're done with you guys. This is crazy. You're running this like a frat house, right? You can't spend every dime you make. You got to exercise some fiscal discipline. So that's part of it, why their cost structure is so low. The other part of it is, you know, by, again, this isn't as big as some people make it out to be, but Biden shut down drilling access on public lands. People will talk about the number of, of uh, permits that are out there. That's meaningless. Okay, permits could be on land that doesn't even have oil on it. It's just a general administrative action of the government because you got to have a permit to drill. You you could have a hundred thousand outstanding permits, and you could have horrible production ahead of you. You could have ten thousand outstanding permits and a wonderful production. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the, it, whenever I hear people cite permits as part of the deal, it's 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 a misnomer. It yeah. has nothing to do with any of it, right? So <clears throat> so the, the the so getting back to the question of profit, first of all. Uh, they made a promise to shareholders to conserve capital, so they're not going to be reckless. Second of all, there's no reason to be reckless because the price of oil is – and even when it was up at 100 you, again, I, do you hear a lot of people on the ro- on the street talking about how excited they are about oil? Right. Right? No. So even when they were above, right, if my cost structure, if my cost per barrel is 85 to 90 and oil's at 100 to 105 and I just came out of that – what I just came out of last eight or nine years – if I'm a CEO, I'm sitting there going, let's see where we're at in three months. Sure. Right. I'm not going to make the same mistakes we've made in the past. Right. Once bitten, twice shy. So that's a big part of it. And then the political climate has a lot to do with it. Right. They, they look and I'm not blaming Biden. I just came out and said, you know, I don't put this all at his feet. This this issue, the underinvestment that happened in energy, he wasn't president. He was vice president. Vice president didn't have anything to do with that. Sure. And I don't even think it's Obama's fault. A lot of it's just normal economics, sure. right? So, so the, the but the pressures and the lack of government help as it relates to drilling, then the last eight years they went through in an effort to win back and not go bankrupt, by the way, right? They learned a lot of hard lessons over the last eight years. Mm-hmm. You combine those things, and the most expensive part of operating any type of commodity company, especially drillers, is the exploration. Mm-hmm. So those guys went, hey, until we feel really safe that higher prices are here to stay, we're going to produce, we're going to run maintenance on our own wells, but we're not going to drill vigorously mm-hmm. because we don't want to upset this. And that way, we're going to return mountains of money to shareholders, and they'll trust us again. Mm-hmm. That That is where the profits come from. And it's that simple. When people talk about oil companies gouging, right? Again, I don't understand why the exact same charge isn't levied against Apple. 
if people are willing to buy an iPhone for 1600 bucks as an Apple shareholder, I don't want them to sell it for 14. Right. Right. That's the clearing price of the good. Right. And as a, as a common person, right, we think about business that when a business is selling a product, generally the businesses are the ones that are choosing what prices that they're going to charge. And then that's based on free markets, right? What, what is, what are our competitors charging? And then we adjust. What will people pay? Right. And so, you know, one of the things I was asking you yesterday is, man, where does the price of oil come from? Right. Where does the, the price of oil barrels, like it's not controlled by these companies. And if they could, (laughs) your point yesterday was hilarious. If they could choose to change the prices to benefit themselves, then what were they doing when when the price of oil was negative thirty seven? Right, that makes no sense. If you had a price fixer on staff, that's when he got fired. Right, exactly. Right, and so when I look at it, I mean, I think you laid it out perfect. That when you're looking at the most simple explanation for the profit side of the conversation, it's their costs were at all time lows. They're selling excess supplies, and when you're selling it at the prices that they're at, with virtually as little cost as they're ever going to have, of course they're going to have record profits in that scenario. But again, to the average day consumer, it looks bad when they're paying, you know, really high prices, not all time highs, but, all, you know, really high gas prices. Yeah. At the same time that we're seeing these earning reports coming out where they're at all time profit margins. Right. And so we're looking at it through the lens as a consumer. But there's more to that dynamic. And I think you brought up a good point. I think this is a good segue to the political side of this conversation. You know, it doesn't help that one of, you know, Biden's, uh, you know, one of his. When he in the election cycle, one of the things he was saying really continuously was that he wanted to end fossil fuels. Right? He wanted to end this entire industry, and so there repeatedly, has, repeatedly, repeatedly. This is yeah. not you know. And like you said, you know, I think Trump had some good policies when it came to oil domestically, turning on a lot of the things here where we're not as reliant in the Middle East. And I think there was a lot of good things that he did in that regard. Um, but like you said, you know, presidents are not the ones controlling gas prices. I think that's so funny around election cycles. You know, oh, people yeah. are talking all the time. Oh, well, you know, gas prices are going up or they're going down and the president's the one affecting that so that they can get elected. And it's just that's not how it works. No, but, no. but people are convinced that that's true. And yeah. there's nothing you can tell them that's going to change. No, that. no. But but politically, I did want to ask you. You know, I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the impact that Russia does have. Um, you know, we don't like you were telling me yesterday, there's no refineries that have been built in the United States since, since 1974. Is that what you said? Yeah. And I, yeah. 72 or 74. And this gets into the, the so not only is this the political side of it, but this is the gasoline side. Right. So first of all, one of the things that drives me nuts, people, the oil companies are making so much. Hold on. Are you talking about the oil companies? Are you talking about the refiners? Or are you talking about the integrated place? Right? Because some of those, and I believe Exxon still is, it's integrated, meaning it produces and it refines and it distributes, right? It handles all of it in-house, essentially. Um, refining is a total other deal. If So you're going, well, then why are gas prices so high? Because if you noticed, if you listen to Biden's words, the enemy or the reason why oil prices have are so high, the enemy has changed about three times. Sure. Right. At first, it was the oil companies. Then it was the gasoline companies gouging you at the pump. Right. So now let's do gasoline. Gasoline. Right. One of the reasons that went higher, of course, was because of oil. Of course. Right. But the reason that gasoline still remains elevated, despite the fact that oil's pulled back, that's a refinery issue. Right. Right. And the, the biggest driver of that is 
you know, there, there's a couple other factors, but the biggest driver of that, especially here in the United States, is probably the Russia-Ukraine thing. Mm-hmm. There are different grades of oil around the world, and different grades of oil produce different distillates. Meaning, when we look at shale oil here in the United States, and I was telling you this yesterday, and I don't think most people know that, and I don't know if this is universal, I, I believe it is, but um, I remember being really surprised the first time I saw a jar of shale oil. It's not black. It looks like tea. Hmm. It's not nearly as thick as regular oil, and it smells like gasoline. Okay, so as you can imagine, that is a much different type of material to refine than heavy crude, right? The the black stuff that we're all used to seeing. Mm-hmm. So we don't have refining capability in this country to refine our crude. Now, other places in the world do. And that's why things worked so well before COVID, because basically what we were doing, we're the world's largest exporter of oil, but barely any of it was being consumed here. We were sending it to other places that had the refining capability in exchange, essentially, for their crude, which we have the refining capability for here. Hmm. Okay. So one of those areas of that heavier, darker crude that is so good for making diesel, and this is one of the reasons diesel went up so much, is Russia. Well, we put basically an embargo and put, uh, what do we call it? Uh, re- re- uh, um, what we, we did it with the doll. I'm just blanking right now where you, where you, you, you say nobody can buy it. Um, anyway, restrictions. We, we, we basically blocked. Now, India was still buying it in place, but we were basically like saying, hey, you don't have access to the global marketplace with your oil, right? Sanctions. Sorry, there was, that's the word, sanctions. <laughs> wow, long week. Um, and so that was a lot of the crude that we would use traditionally to develop those distillates, to develop diesel, to develop some, you know, jet fuel and all these kind of things. So when you take that crude offline, there's a hole there. Right. Right. And we, so now you've got our refiners aren't able to throw off those distillates because they're not getting that crude. Right. And yet the rest of the world's demand for gas remains the same. So it's sort of like you've built up this, you know, party and everybody's used to getting a plate. Right. But you cut the plate count by like half and you still invited the same number of people. Mm. Right. And then you gave them each a hundred bucks to bid for a plate. Well, eventually somebody's going to bid the entire hundred bucks. Right. Because they got to have the. So it's just supply and demand where we took a chunk of distillates off the market because of that lack of Russian crude, mm-hmm. right? There's a hole in the global supply chain and prices go up. Mm-hmm. And then, and so the refiners on the other side of it, people are like, well, then the refiners are sticking it to us. Once again, they got a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. If you own that refinery and you knew that they could sell their distillates for four to $5 a, a, a gallon, would you be happy if you found out they were selling it for three twenty-five? No, you'd sit there and go, look, I'm all for you helping the American people. But at the end of the day, I've plugged $10 million into your operation. I want the return on my capital. Sure. That's not a, that, that's not a greedy thing to ask for, right? That's like, again, if we make this Apple, everybody's like, well, that's fine. They make a superior product. You're like, well, yeah, but you don't need an iPhone to get to work, right? Why should the oil companies be governed by a different set of rules? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and that really, it, it, and it, the issue really evolved into what we call, what we refer to as the crack spreads in, re, in refining. Now, this is where I'm going to talk. I'm not going to go into great detail here because, first of all, I'm not an expert on the refining process. And this is where we'll just lose people. But basically speaking, a crack spread is 
talking about it is the spread between what the refiner is paying for the oil versus what's what they can sell the distillates for. Okay, and crack sped spreads blew out. The reason crack sped spreads blew out is because they actually had oil. Oil was more expensive. Mm-hmm. It's it's more scarce, but they had oil, right? What they didn't have is refining capacity, right? So now where they were producing, let's say, uh, you know, 100 million gallons, of, and I'm just throwing numbers out there. Sure. Where, where they were producing 100 million gallons of gasoline, maybe it's uh, 70 million gallons, mm-hmm. right? Well, the consumption and the demand hasn't changed, right? You've just shrunk the pie. So now everybody is willing, because they have to, to pay more for a slice, mm-hmm. right? So it is once again, like with all commodities, it is the market that demands it. The companies have, if a company wants to price gouge, in a, in a, especially in a commodity, right? If you have, I'm trying to think of, like with pharmaceutical companies, it'd be different, okay? Because a lot of times they have the patent. If you want that drug, you got to go through them. We all know the stories of that, right? Mm-hmm. Commodity markets are completely different. I mean, think of how many oil producing companies there are out there in the world, right? Right. If you were going to price gouge across the entire platform, you'd have to get them all to communicate and work. To, I mean, come on. Right. That'd be a, that'd be a certain level of collusion we've never seen. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and look, and, and if it was attempted, there'd be plenty of people that took advantage of it, undercut them to sell their oil. Right. Right. So just this simplistic way that we're looking at a market that is global, mm-hmm. you know, that's another thing that you want to think about for the price gouging argument. Think of how many countries around the world are producing oil, Right. Do, what are the chances you think we just said it, but another way to say, what do you, what do you think the chances are, even if they wanted to right? at the end of the day, a larger percentage of those producers and those individual companies are going to do what's beneficial for them as opposed to sticking. Now people are like, what about OPEC plus? And I'm like, okay, that's an exception. Sure. Now, if you want to make the argument that OPEC plus is influencing prices they do have more influence over the price but they also control a disproportionate amount of 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 oil in the world right now even then though you can't really hang that on opec plus because they've been trying to increase their output Mm -hmm. and this is something that a lot of the experts we've had on the show have talked about for years which is this myth of spare capacity with opec meaning they could just flick a switch and increase production well we found out that it's not that simple people go how do you know and i'm because when oil was at 130 if you had access to a barrel of oil you wanted to sell it yeah Okay, you wanted to. You can't sit there and say they're greedy and then tell me they don't want to sell it at 130. Right. Right. I, you, you, those are those are completely opposing statements. Right. Are they greedy? I agree with you. They're greedy. They want to sell as much as they can at the highest price they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Right. So where was all that excess supply at 130? Now, one thing you did see at 130 is you started to see rig counts go up. Mm-hmm. Right. Why? Because now you've got some space between your break even. Right. If your break even is between 80 and 90, 100 bucks ain't going to get you off the couch. Right. 130 is. Right. Right. Now we've got some serious margin there. Move to, room to expand. Yeah. Yes. Which is why you've seen the rig count. And your buddy saying is, well, what about rig counts dropping? And I go, oil's dropping. Right. When oil goes down, rig counts go down mm-hmm. for the reasons that we just discussed. Yeah. Right. Because, again, go out there and try to raise a fund for oil that costs 80 to 90 bucks when the price is at 70. Right. No, you got no takers. Right. So 
the the but the profit side on that it just comes out to supply and demand if we're going to blame anybody mm-hmm. on the gasoline side it, it really the only person that we can blame is the US government for making it virtually impossible to build out refining capacity in this country um and it really is a shame too because i understand you know when you look at the way these companies are governed I can see why people in 1972 and 1974 said no ref- more refiners. And, and you got to think back to the history. You go, go, you can go, we can go clear back to the days of Rockefeller, mm-hmm. right? These guys were polluting so bad that the, was, was it the Ohio river? What, the, literally the, there was one of these main rivers. I think it was the Ohio river that would routinely catch on fire. The mm-hmm. river would, it was so polluted with distillates from refining processes and all that kind of stuff. So I can understand why people had an avert, you know, a, an avoidance or, a, or, you know, an aversion to wanting to create more refiners, mm-hmm. but the, the regulations are so much tighter. Now the technology is so much better. Now, what really the takeaway that we should be looking at from this mm-hmm. is not, these guys are price gouging. Again, I'll just keep going back to if they could price gouge, what in the hell were they doing in 2014 when the price collapsed? And what in the hell were they doing during COVID when it went negative 37? Right. Right. I mean, you just, you can't, these things don't work and it's not as sexy of a story, right? Especially if we're anti-carbon and we're anti, you know, we're ESG people. We, we want them to be the bad guys, but, but this is one of the most frustrating parts of my debate is and and this will ruffle feathers with people when I say this, but if we're really interested in going quote unquote green, we should be working with the oil companies, not against them. They are the number one investors in green energy. Right. No, you don't hear any stories about that. Right. And right? it's really easy to have really strong rhetoric against oil companies. But as we've even seen with Biden, you know, on the election trail was very brash about his yeah. positions. But he since has has really, you know, moved backwards on that. And we've seen that he's attempting to make investments in certain areas, you know, working with the SPR. I mean, there's there's aspects that he's really, you know, started to walk back some of the things that he said because the reality is, is we need oil, right? Until, you know, nuclear plants come online or, or new technology comes online in a sustainable way, oil's here to stay and it's going to continue to stay, yeah. you know, until that happens. And so, you know, there's another part of this that we haven't talked about yet where there's some rhetoric out there where people are saying that oil companies are price gouging. Again, we've kind of already dismembered that, but they're saying that this is happening because oil companies are trying to stick it to Biden, right? That it's like this vengeance trail that because he came out and said what he did about fossil fuels, you know, that they're, that they're in it to just, you know, stick it to, to Biden. And then, you know, the American people are just the byproduct of that. Uh, But again, you know, like you said, you know, the capabilities of them actually doing something like that, you know, are pretty far-fetched. Well, I, so I'd say one of two things. So the big, bad, evil, greedy oil companies don't want to make more money to stick it to Biden. Uh, okay. That doesn't really float. Um, now on the flip side, is there an element of wanting to stick it to Biden? I'm sure there is right. When you come out and you demonize them, right. And say that your policy Right. And he said it. Mo- we're yeah, not very clear. We're, yeah. I'm not, we're not mincing words here. Right. We want to get rid of these companies. OK. Do you now expect them to go load the gun that he's going to use to kill them? Right. Why, why would they do that? Right. Now, what is interesting, like you said, and, and again, of course, this isn't going to get addressed in the media. But one of our holdings, ConocoPhillips, 
just got a big new, uh, just got a sign off from the Biden administration to drill in, in, in Alaska. You notice Biden isn't talking about that, right? right? right. Why? Because it cuts against the political zeitgeist, right? He doesn't want people to know that. Why did he relent? Because he knew he was wrong, which I give him credit for, sure. right? You about faced. But if you watch the administration and what they're doing, they're revealing to you that they were wrong footed. Mm-hmm. And they also realized, I hope now the SPR is another matter and we can address that, but they also realized that, Hey, we better tamp down the rhetoric. Cause if we keep going down this path, we, again, these guys have a legal obligation to their shareholder base. If they thought the best thing to do to protect their shareholder base was stop production, I can't fault them. They're not, they, their legal responsibility is to act inside the law, which that is completely legal, right? And then number two, right after that, is their shareholders. Right. Their job is not to act on the behalf of Biden or his administration or the average consumer. That's not their job. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you want to go change the legal structure, which I'd encourage you not to do, because we don't want we don't want private companies acting on behalf of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, just that people are like, why not? And I'm like, that's a whole nother. We could spend five days talking about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd point out the Soviet Union for how that can go wrong. Right. Sure. You want shortages. Go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the the administrate, like I said, it. And this is what gets lost today, not just in this argument, but I mean, shoot, it's everything we talk about. You're going to hear the extremes on both sides, right? right? Um, And the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And in this case, I think it's probably a little bit right of middle. I hate to use the right and left terminology, but um, when you go out there, if, if you're the CEO of an oil company and the president that gets elected to the United States is saying that one of his preeminent goals is to end you. Would you then go out on a big capital expenditure campaign? Right. No, you're shuttering the doors. You tighten down. Right. You right. You survive the storm. You have a legal obligation to do so. Right. Um, when they're going to demonize you and not give you credit for all the, you know, I've told you the stories about Conical Phillips, about one of one of my clients and good friends uh, is part owner of one of the largest cattle, uh, one of the largest dairy operations down in Texas. Conical Phillips came in there on their own money. And put in an eighty million dollar facility on site that converts cow manure into uh, methane gas or a type of gas. I don't want to. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a geologist or a, <laughs> a gas expert. Um, but basically, they can power the vast majority, if not all, of the entire operation off of the cow manure. Wow! Right? Conical Phillips developed that technology and paid for it and used them as a as a as a test case. Yeah. Right. So. I've always sat there and looked at this and said, if we really want to fix this problem and the big record setting profit oil companies are the bad guy, it wouldn't it be, wouldn't we get there quicker if we convince them to, 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 to be greedy, but be greedy toward the, you know what I mean? To be yeah. greedy in a way that is cooperative. Yeah. Right. Of course it would be. And there's no lack of issues. I mean, look what's happening in Texas literally right now this week. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to continue to happen. Right. Um, and so th- this whole, this whole thing, the SPR is another issue. People are like, well, that's why Biden was forced to use the SPR. Look, one of the things I've learned in life is that it never, it's never all roses, right? There's always downsides. There's always stuff to it. it in my opinion, and I think that there's, you know, all, 
I try to delineate where we're talking about subject or, or objective facts versus subjective opinion. Mm-hmm. I would put this on the objective side, but I admit that part of my bias is in this in this uh, statement. But I still think it'll bear out. I, I'm 100% convinced it'll be uh, bear out to be true, which is the longer what is going to increase oil production are higher oil prices. Okay, that's that's what's going to do it. Hmm. Okay. So in my opinion, every single month that Biden continues issuing the SPR, releasing a million barrels a day onto the open market, mm-hmm. the, those on the left would be like, well, it's working. It's pushing down the price of oil. I'm sitting there in the back going, yeah, just wait till he's done. Right. Right. Because what you're doing is you're delaying the needed investment to keep this from shooting right back up and happening again. Can you explain a little bit what the SPR is? I mean, what what is what are the reserves? How does that work? Yeah, so it's the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and pretty much every country has one. And the whole idea is is if global shipping, what they want to do is they want to they want to prevent other because you have a global marketplace, and and it's kind of weird to think about it. People are like we produce all the oil here. Why do we need to trade? Again, the refining issue. We produce a lot of oil. But we effectively need to trade it for oil that works in our refiners, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this global oil market set up. And what what those what what the US does and every country that has an SPR, virtually everyone does, it's if global trade gets disrupted or if there's a war, they don't want to be at the mercy of somebody else, right? So if somebody can just shut off the oil to them and they're just up a creek, right? You think of the damage you could do to somebody. Sure. Right? I mean, that's what we did to Japan and that's what got us into World War II. Mm-hmm. And some would say that that was purposeful on our part. I don't want to get into that discussion, sure. but I think it was. Um, but so the so the SPR is that amount. I think before we tapped our SPR, we had something like, I, I want to say it was like somewhere between 650 to 725 million barrels of oil set aside for us, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, I'm assuming that's the largest SPR in the world. Um, and the whole idea, like I said, is that if there's a disruption in supply or if there's a global conflict that's shut, right? That somebody can't hold you hostage and that you can still run your economy and it gives you time. Right. So, so, <laughs> so hold on. So, so is us draining the SPR, if we drain it all the way down, is that's putting us in a vulnerable position as a country then? Am well, I- yeah. Yeah. Especially okay. when you combine it with our lack of ability to refine our own stuff. Okay. Right. So you've, you've burned down the SPR. I'm not sure exactly where it is. I, I want to say you've burned down about two thirds of it already. Okay. Okay. Now by American law, us law, I believe it is, he has to have, and I'll, I'll run this stuff by Tracy who we're interviewing on Monday. Cause she like, you know, I'm a, I'm a layman's crude expert, right? But she is truly a crude expert. I mean, she's dedicated her career to it. So I believe that by law he's, they've got three years to refill that. Okay. So but at some point, and this is one of the things that I think is promising if you're bullish the price of oil, but also concerning when you're looking at it through the inflationary lens, is that when you look back to oil is horrifically misunderstood in terms of pricing. So in 2007, when oil peaked at 146, through the financial crisis, you got to the bottom of the financial crisis about 16, 17 months later, and oil had fallen from 146 down to like 35, okay? That entire drop from 146 to 35 was based on a reduction of global oil demand of just 4.5%, right? So it's not like consumption plummeted, mm-hmm. right? It dipped 4.5%. Why did oil drop so much? 
Because remember, we talked about the way oil works. You can't just turn it off and shut it back on. The expense is too great. Sure. So typically what you do when oil demand drops and you don't need to sell all your oil, you store it. Just because it costs you less to store it and sell it later than to shut down the well, restart it up, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So just the smallest drop or the smallest increase in demand can throw the market into chaos, Mm -hmm. right? So when you look at global oil demand right now is at about 102 million barrels a day. When you look at the lockdowns in China, I've seen a bunch of different figures, but let's just average them. Right. We'll throw out the low, throw out the high somewhere in the middle. I figure somewhere between three and a half to four and a half million barrels a day of demand has been taken offline due to uh, China's shutdowns. Right. Well, so if that's true, let's split the middle. We'll call it three million. That's three percent of global oil demand. Right. Where a four percent, four and a half percent drop equaled one hundred and ten dollar drop in the price. Right. So. China eventually has to open up that 3 million barrels of demand is only a matter of time until it comes back on. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Biden has burned through two thirds of this SPR. So that has to come off. That's a million barrels a day. So between China reopening, which is an eventuality and Biden quitting, you know, uh, stop releasing the SPR, which is an eventuality legally has to be refilled, right? Yeah, It has to be refilled. Okay. So those two, so you go from having, basically an excess of five, you know, four and a half to 5 million barrels a day to not only does that excess get taken away, but it flips back to the other side because Biden's got to not only not quit dumping a million barrels a day, he's got to start buying it. Right. Right. So even if you, and that's one of the reasons we've said, even if, you know, and we, you know, I think everybody knows this. We very much think that we're going to be in a recession this year. And I think we already are. But that's one of the reasons we've said, I think this might be the only recession. Now, it's going to be volatile because the what, what you'll see, and we've seen this since this whole oil pinch came, o- the market price of oil still responds to historic stimuli, right? Even though that that historic stimuli isn't in play right now, meaning people go, like, for instance, people are saying, well, the high price of oil, you know, oil can't stay here because, you know, uh, high prices fix themselves. And you go, yeah, in a balanced market. Meaning when supply and demand are equalized, if the price of oil gets too high, it will kill demand. But when you've taken a bunch of supply off market, we've lost refining capacity and there's a hole in the middle, right? The only thing that's going to fix that eventually is increased production, which usually comes with higher prices. But because of the sequence and the way things played out through COVID, and then on top of it, the Greta Thunbergs of the world and Biden and all the attack, they've had no defenders, right? So they've been pressured on all sides. And the economic reasons, like why I was saying, why they weren't drilling more, right? All those things add up and it's just not the same marketplace. So will will if we go into recession will global oil demand pull back yes but it's going to be counterbalanced by biden having to refill the spr or whoever is president at that time has to refill the spr and china not being on lockdown anymore so i think you could be looking at a situation where oil goes higher in a recession which has never really happened that's also one of the reasons why we think that this era of low inflation is over now i think you're going to see low inflation prints this year Right. Like, I think you're going to hear a lot of talk of inflation is whipped. Well, that's because inflation dies in a recession. It always does. There's no exception. Right. Um, but but that's that's going to be. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. Right. 
if Biden's, if you go from dumping a million barrels a day onto the open market to buying a million barrels a day, and if we know that the supply demand dynamics of oil are that sensitive, and then China comes back online at the same time, you got a problem. Right. Right. The other thing we're watching, and this is something that hasn't happened yet, and I'm actually looking forward to talking to Tracy about this, was that in the past, what we had seen is when the West pulled out of areas like Russia or like Venezuela or whatever, production fell off a cliff, right? Because they're relying on the West's expertise and knowledge of how to get it done. Mm -hmm. Russia production hasn't, hasn't, it hasn't slowed down. So th that's an interesting dynamic. And what I'm wondering is, is how durable that is. Mm -hmm. um, because I, and again, I, I got to talk to Tracy about this. I don't know enough about those dynamics, but my fear is, is that that, that product, cause it's just happened every time. Right. And Russia's a mess right now. Um, I just have a hard time believing their production isn't going to fall off too. Yeah. So, you know, I, and this is all these reasons Oil's going to be wild. It's going to keep moving around. But, um, I just, I don't think, you know, I, for instance, I think the days of seeing sustainable oil below 60 bucks, I think they're over, hmm. um, whether it's through political forces or, or there's plenty of oil out there in the world. The problem is, is most of it's much more expensive than, you know, if you want to go to offshore oil, you know, if offshore wants to fill in that gap, you probably need prices north of 115 or 120 because offshore is more expensive, yeah. generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and this oil issue is going to continue. And uh, again, it'll be fits and starts and things like that. But but what's unfortunate to me, and this is where I'm really frustrated with the Biden administration right now, is come out and say it, man. Just come out and do your mea culpa and go, hey, we were a little too hard on these guys. We need these guys. We need to cooperate, right? Almost like you wish a conversation would happen between both parties right now, sure. right? Be conciliatory, conciliatory yeah. and come out and say, wait a second, we've demonized these guys, but they are also the largest investors in ESG. And one of the things I've said for a long time, politically or, 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 or uh, economically incentivize these guys to invest. Give them a special write-off deal where maybe for every dollar they invest in ESG, they get a write-off a buck 20 or something, right? Incentivize it. Mm -hmm. Incentivize them to deploy capital in this area, and they will, right? But quit demonizing them, right? right? It's so crazy that everybody agrees, especially on the left and the people that are really pushing the green agenda, we need money. Money's what we need. And screw the evil oil companies. You're like, guys, all the money you need is right there. Right. Quit bloody demonizing them and cooperate, right? And, and if you listen to the head of a lot of these big oil companies, they've said repeatedly, guys, we're not oil companies. We're energy companies, right? Now, are some of these guys talking out of the side of their mouth? Sure. Of course. Yeah. Right? They're going to say whatever they can to get paid. Yep. But generally speaking, if you're the CEO of ExxonMobil, do you care whether you're making money off wind farms or oil? No. You sell energy. That's what you do. And if you think that the world and the government is going to make it really onerous to keep producing oil, what are you going to start doing? You're going to start diversifying your income streams. Right. Right? It's just, a, it's, of course you are. Economics. Yes. It's just basic economics. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, I'm not saying these guys are all choir boys, but I, I just, I really want people to understand. And you and I talk about this all the time. There's, there's so much in finance that's subjective. Right. But there are things that are objective yep. and trying to say that what's gone on with oil and gasoline prices, if you chalk that up to price gouging, all you're saying is, you know, nothing about what you're talking about. And I don't mean that in a pejorative condescending way. 
I mean it in a literal way, meaning you don't understand market dynamics. And if you think that that even governments can't control the price of oil, if the U.S. government can't control the price of oil, how in the world does ExxonMobil do it? You know what I'm saying? Like, how how is that possible? Yeah. And and the other thing, where people- does the, where does the price of oil come from? I mean, that's probably that's a good question too, right? Like, it's not just some guy in a dark room deciding what the price is. I mean, what are the? I mean, just really briefly, what are the couple economic factors that lead to the price of oil? Yeah. So I thought you brought up a really good point earlier when you were talking about the way. Uh, you know, we can even use Bulwark as an example, right? We've sat around, looked at what our costs are, look at the way we do things, and that's how we determine our pricing. But what people are willing to pay for our services also factors into that pricing. Mm-hmm. I think going back to we were talking about the profitability of oil too. I, I we used ourselves as an analogy too. Yeah, if we cut marketing completely, our profitability is going to skyrocket. Goes through the roof. Yeah. What if we get rid of uh, everybody in here who's a non-revenue producer? Our our client support staff. If we cut marketing and our client support staff, our profits would soar over the course of the year. With consequences. Yes. Yeah. Because then the <laughs> yeah. business is no longer sustainable. Correct. And that's what I look at these people and I go, guys, the oil companies are no different. They want to be producing. They want to be selling. That's what they do. Right. But they're just in a tight spot. It's not economically feasible for them to do it. On top of that, they got the government gun pointed at their head. And if you're in their shoes, their actions are completely rational. Yeah. I'd be shocked if they were doing anything else, sure. right? Which was one of our thesis. And that was one of the things I was telling you. Why do you think we were so bold up on oil in the middle of 2021? The reason we were so bold up on oil were these dynamics. It wasn't because of our belief that they could price gap. It wasn't people. ideology, right? No, it was looking right. at the market. Remember, yeah. I was sitting there telling you, look, oil's going to go above 120. At that point, we were sitting at what, $50 oil? Yeah, something like and that. And we're like, this thing's going to go through the roof. How are we looking at that? Inventories, production, rig counts, and then also production costs. Yeah. Right. And and why you can glean so much from that is typically and I mean, like ninety nine point eight percent of the time when you're talking about corporations, they're going to make rational decisions. Yeah. Right. And so when you look at a break even cost at 80 to 90, the current price at 50 and you already see inventories get, getting sucked bone dry, you don't have to be an energy expert to sit there and go, uh oh, this thing is going up right. and it's going up in a big way. Yeah. I think oftentimes we just try to make things more complicated than they really are. But I mean, in this case, it sounds like it really is just a simple case of supply and demand. I mean, totally. we hate to simpl- oversimplify it. Right? right. And obviously, like we've talked about, there's a lot of components that go into it, but it really does come back to supply and demand. Yep. Where Where is it coming from? How do we create it? What are the costs to create it? How do we cover those costs and how do we still pay, you know, how, how do we still make money to feed our families. Right? Yeah. And I want to address something you asked because I, I don't want to gloss over it. How is the price of oil determined? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> like any, so if you really want to understand markets, like truly like the base level of how markets work, commodities are the best way to really look at it because they don't, people buy iPhones for all kinds of reasons outside of they need a phone. Sure. Right. If you need a functional phone, you can get one for a hell of a lot cheaper than an iPhone, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of reasons. Commodities are completely the opposite. No one cares who they get it from. That's why it's called a commodity, right? Right. It doesn't matter who you're buying it from, right? I don't care if I'm going to fill up my, it's not like I pull up the gas tank at Chevron and go, is this American shale? <laughs> it's not, I'm not putting it in my rig, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, you're going to take whatever gets you down the road. Sure. So it literally is simply supply and demand. They go out there to the market. The market is saying, we'll pay this price. 
which is why we call commodity companies and oil companies in general, they are price takers. They are not price makers. Okay. And the reason you know that's the case is look at the number of companies and and countries in this world that produce oil. Right. If somebody steps up and tries to price gouge, I, I guarantee you they're going to so, get undercut. Yes, yeah, exactly. they're going to get undercut and they're, and they're going to steal market share. Right. Which ironically is exactly how Rockefeller dominated the entire oil industry. It wasn't by price gouging. It's by undercutting. Right. Right. So when you really think something nefarious is going on in the commodity world, the easiest way to do it is through price cutting, not raising. Right. Right. Because not everybody's colluding. You pointed this out early, right? There's always going to be that guy. <clears throat> now, if, and this is why I bring this up. Monopolies are not made through higher prices. They're made through lower prices because it's the only way you can consolidate power. Right. Right. And it's just basic human behavior. If your strategy is to get 10 of the biggest players in the room together and we're going to push prices up for something that's as ubiquitous as oil, a hundred others are going to come in right underneath oh, yeah. you and steal market share. Right. Right. So if your argument was they're forcing the price of oil down to consolidate more power to control it, it'd be impossible, but it's a much more realistic thesis than saying they're price gouging. Right. Right. It just, it can't work in a commodities market. Mm -hmm. People, then people bring up the hunt brothers and silver in the eighties. That was one example with an, with a market of silver, which is a fraction. I mean, a minute fraction of the size of the right. oil market. Right. Uh, so it, it's not even possible what these people are talking about. Um, and the refiners, like I said, the prices are where they are at because that is the desperation of the people that want it. And that is the price they will pay, period. And uh, there's just not more to it. It's really simple. Well, one other thing you were talking about, too, that I think would be beneficial is, you know, I think you're talking about how we are we are you know, we are producing oil here in the U S and then we have to send it somewhere else for it to be refined. And then we get it back to be able to sell it as gasoline, as right. As diesel, all these things. Um, you were explaining the cost structure of, you know, of us having to do all of those things that also impact the prices that we're seeing as consumers. Um, you know, expand on how that, how that can also impact that. Yeah. Well, okay. So if we just go to the refining thing right now, I, I can tell you unequivocally, if we allowed refiners to be built here, refineries to be built here, and especially again, I'm not an expert in the refinery process, but especially for crude refining, um, deals, it's not like, um, they're much quicker. They're, they're not cheap, but they're much quicker and much more affordable to build than like a nuke plant. Okay. So it's not like it takes eight years to build one of these things. Yeah. So you could, you could build excess refiner capacity in this country pretty quick. Um, if you, if we were to sit back and target like, okay, Zach, I understand all the stuff you're talking about free markets and all that, you know, all that other stuff. But if there was one thing that we could point to and go, okay, but did somebody have any blame in this? I really think the only blame that you, well, not the only blame. I will guarantee you this. If we didn't have the policies regarding refineries in this country that we did, there's no way gas would be at the prices now. And there's, it is now, and there's no way it would have ever gotten as high as it was. Mm. Okay. That is strictly, that, that is a direct ramification. We don't have a shortage of oil. Think how stupid that is for national security right. purposes that we produce a certain kind of oil, but our refiners 
can't process that type of oil and the government won't let people build other refineries. Aren't we sitting on one of the biggest like oil like places in the entire world that we're not even tapping into that Trump did start to, right? I think I remember hearing something like that. There's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different we, we we've got we're, we've got tons of oil. We have no shortage of oil, no, point, right? No. So it's not like we have to depend on the Middle East. We don't have to no. depend on Russia. We're the world's largest energy exporter. Right. Oh jeez, wow. Yeah, we're the biggest, right? So once again, um you know, for instance, they're price gouging. Okay, our oil production right now is running right around 12 and a half million barrels. I think it was like, I think the highest ever got to was 13.2. Mm. So you're looking at it and going, I, guys, what are you saying? It's not at nine. It's not at 10. Mm-hmm. It's not like they've shut in all these wells, right? They're like, well, why isn't it back up to 13.2? And I'm like, guys, you don't understand something. First of all, I bet you the biggest reason why it's went from 13.2 to 12.5 is that 700,000 barrels a day wasn't profitable. Hmm. That's probably it, right? Number one. B, the other one is to maintain flows of oil. If you want to maintain your level of oil production, like it is with a farm, like it is with a garden, there is work and investment that must go into those assets to keep them producing, right? Right. Well, when you've got negative net investment and you're not right, oil is not infinite. It's finite. So as you're depleting this, you need to be building this other one up just to maintain levels of production. Mm -hmm. So if we stay in this dynamic, and this is what I was saying about the SPR, if we stay in these dynamics, oil shortages will become more pernicious and they will become more regular Mm -hmm. and more of an issue because everybody's like, well, we're converting. Let's say their wildest conversion metrics play out, which they won't. It's not possible in terms of converting to green energy and things like that. Um, the, a lot of those green energy plays require a lot of crude, right? So yeah. demand isn't going to fall off. So what you see them doing is you see them attacking the supply side, right? Before we've addressed the demand side. Sure. If you wanted to create a storm, uh, a blank storm, right? An S storm, you know, mm-hmm. this is how you do it. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying it's intentional. I don't think it's intentional. Right. I just think like most things with our government, you've got a bunch of idiots in charge that are thinking six inches in front of their face and operating on political ideals. You know, like this whole oil debate in, in, in that we're having right now, it's ridiculous, right? If, if we were really run by adults um, and you can say it for both parties, I think both parties have been ridiculous when it yeah. comes to this thing. Um, if we have cleaner, more efficient ways to run things, why, why would we inhibit that? Right. Why would we get in the way? Right. We, right. we, we all benefit from that. I like green grass and nice environments and clean air, but let's be real about how we get there. Right. Yeah. I think there was a perfect, there was a picture that came out last year. Who knows if it's real, right. But that, uh, that there was an EV that had broken down somewhere along the freeway and someone brought out a generator yeah. to charge it. It was real. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh man, like that's a perfect picture of what we're, of what yeah. we're dealing with. Will we get to a more EV friendly environmental, you know, safe, all that kind of stuff? Will we get to where society is more, you know, revolving around that and where it's more, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's taking up more of the market share. Like, of course we're going to get there, which I think is a good thing personally. Yeah, sure. Um, but how we get there in this transition period also matters, right? And yeah. we have to, let's at least be honest that to get from one to the other, you're going to need oil. There's no way around that. You just will. And I think that picture of the generator that was charging the car is a perfect example that in order for this EV thing to really take off, 
oil's not going anywhere and it's probably not going anywhere for a really long time. So how do we, like you said, how do we partner together? How do we bipartisan look at this thing and go, guys, if we're really going to get to a place where we're getting a sustainable energy source in a way that's going to be better economically for the country, that's going to be renewable, all the things that we're trying to get to, like you said, that's not a bad thing. We should be going after that. And I think that if we're really looking at issues of pollution, right? Like we got to look at China, right? Like there's so many, like if we're going to be really, you know, if we're going to be really sticklers about pollution, like there's other places that are doing it a, you know, a lot worse than what we're doing here in the country. And so I just look at it through the lens of this whole oil conversation in general is guys, oil's needed. Let's, let's go, let's progress in a good way. That's going to be better for the environment, for all the things, but let's do it together in a way that makes sense. Let's not, let's not pretend like oil all of a sudden isn't a thing anymore. Yeah. And then we're looking at grids that are failing in California. We're looking at grids that are failing in Texas. Yeah. So, so they're now listen, they're failing. And at the same time, Newsom and the, the government in California is saying that no internal combustion engines on the road by 2035. Right, which, which is, is impossible. 20, is it 2030 or 2035? I yeah, I'm not sure. It's one of those two. It's one of those two. Well, okay, which is impossible. So, so just just think about this. If you're if you're having gray outs or brown outs or whatever the heck they call them, and and you and let's say you increase the amount of EVs that are being plugged into that grid by 10 million, right? And I think California's got like 30 million cars on the road or something sure. crazy like that. But let's say you let's say you fall short of their projections. What do you think the state of those grids is going to be if you've got an additional 10 million vehicles right. plugged into it's them? It's going to be terrible. No, no. It's going to collapse. Right. Right. It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be like Mad Max. Right. Right. Unless you, unless you spend the trillions of dollars that it requires to rebuild the grids. But you said to something, what's going to get us to a rational place? That's sort of what scares me. Mm. And, and the reason it scares me is looking back through historical lens. <clears throat> um, for instance, here in the United States. Now, you've seen fits and starts along the way, but what really took us from the gas-guzzling muscle car days into more efficient and or and focuses on smaller vehicles and better uh, 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 better mileage? What did that? It was the oil crisis of the 70s. Price of oil went through the roof, right? It went from two barrels to 20. Unfortunately, I think that we're at a place where the partisan divide has gotten so large And when I hear debates like this, it's clear to me that people on both sides of the aisle are not interested in factual conversations, right? right? This has turned into an ideologically and a philosophical battle. Yeah, because this is not subjective. No, it's not. This is empirical. This is facts. This is facts. Right. And that's what's really difficult about even having these conversations is people want to make it about their ideology. They want to make it about their political stance. But there's, there's a reality underlying that we can't avoid that oil is here to stay. And, and that's my point. They want to until it affects them, right? So I think you have to get to a point where, for instance, I have, I'm have i not an expert on this. I would love to see polls in places like Germany right now about what their belief is on energy policy versus where it was two years ago. Oof. Chances are it's changed, Yeah. right? Unfortunately, I think that's what it's going to take here. Thousands of dollars a month, right? Yeah. And, and I, yeah, you had, you had places where I, I was reading about one factory where I think their power bills on average were two to $3,000 a month and they were up to like 40,000. Yeah. You know, just, just insane numbers, right? you know, 10, 15 X, but even residential houses. I mean, people, oh, yeah. are, people are paying a thousand dollars a month for their electricity. Yeah. Now what are they doing to fill in that gap? They're burning coal and wood, right? 
okay, you think oil's polluting? Right. Wait, try coal. Right. And the reason they had to do that is one of the biggest reasons is they disassembled all of their natural gas storage. Okay. And this is another thing that I think doesn't get discussed. There is very much a Western bias involved in this conversation, meaning it, it really is classist in the sense the rest of the world's got to, do you know what would happen if you went and instituted these green policies in countries like India, right? You, 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 you would have mass deaths, right? If you did it in China right now, I mean, China could adapt faster because they've got money, but you cannot expect these countries who are much earlier in their stages of economic development. If you would have gone back and restricted our use of petroleum in the 1940s or the 1950s, the, the, you, you, we would not have the economy we have today. I mean, I'm not saying we'd be in the stone ages, but we'd be, you're just slowing economic advance, right? One of the reasons oil gets used everywhere is because it produces so much energy for the cost. It's right. really effective. It's not used because it's bad. It's used because it's good. Right. Right. And if you arbitrarily just remove that from the mix, you're going to cause all kinds of pain and disruptions and issues. And um, the other misnomer is that believing that there are other alternatives out there. I think it's one of the biggest issues we have in society today sure. is, is this whole belief that there are choices or courses of action that have no cost. Yeah, we're just choosing not to make those choices. Right. Or right. believing that there are choices that have no cost. Oh, sure. Right. Every choice has a cost. Right. Right. Can we do more sustainable levels of ener energy or more sustainable kinds of energy? Yeah, but it's going to come at a cost. Right. It is much more expensive at this point. I've, I heard energy experts sitting there saying, well, the reason green energy is spreading is because of the cost efficiency. It's complete nonsense. Yeah, it's nonsense. It's just complete nonsense. The reason it's spreading is because it's being encouraged and subsidized by the government. Right. And if the government wants to keep subsidizing it, I think that that's probably the max role that they should play. Offer tax incentives. But don't sit in there and get the, you know, and here's energy will progress like every other uh, uh, sector of our economy, which as technological advances come, the biggest issue you've got right now to fulfill the green dream, as I call it, you are decades off in terms of battery technology, right? right? Because all of the vast majority, they don't want nuclear. Now they're softening on that because I think there's at least the ones with brains are starting to realize it's not feasible without nuclear. Right. Right. Cause you have to have base load power. Right. And what is base load power is like this one guy I was reading this. Uh, he's a hardcore green guy. He's like, uh, there's an area in Mexico and I can't remember how big it is, but basically it's like, is an area that's like one eighth of New Mexico. And he's like, we could do a solar farm and it'd produce all the electricity we need in the U S and I go, Okay, so it would produce an amount of energy per day that is equal to what we need in the U.S. Now let's get down to brass tacks. Okay, energy dissipation over time, right? When we run electricity from here down to California, I think you lose about 40 to 50% of it in the process mm -hmm. in transit, right? Sure. He wasn't factoring that into his figures. Of course not. Okay. The other thing he wasn't factoring in is what happens when the sun isn't shining in New Mexico. Right. What happens at night in the United States, right? So... You sit there and you look at them and you're like, guys, you're not the, the, producing the amount of wattage isn't the problem, right? It's how do we transmit it and how do we store it? When you look at the, and this is true across the board, we're facing a real physics problem. Anytime you're transmitting energy, every inch or every mode of transmission will reduce the amount of energy that's there. Yeah. 
right? So you will lose energy as it's going into the battery and you will have energy loss as it's coming out of the battery. That is the biggest issue that we have. Mm -hmm. Then if we think that's the way to go, batteries are not impactless, right? right? Batteries are actually horrific to deal with. They go, you can recycle them, not these new ones, not the new technology they're talking about. Okay. So you just have this big gap. The goal should be not to transition now. The goal should be, here's where we are. Here's where we want to go. What is the least costly in terms of money and human lives way to get there? Okay. The way to get there is make nuclear base load power. Then after that on the, on the list, NAGAS and listening to people talk about NAGAS. Now, if you want to know how full of it, these people are go home, turn on your, turn on your fan on your stove Crank on all four uh, 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 gas burners. See if you end up with any soot on your ceiling. See if anybody starts coughing or gets asthma. Now, people are like, oh, it happens over years. This is such nonsense because you're going to attribute a kid's asthma, not to the dust particles in his house, but you're going to attribute it to the the stove. How do you make that determination? Right. Right. It's just all nonsense. It's vapid. It's ridiculous. It's just the, I mean... A few years ago, Canada was being lauded for the fact that they 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 uh, converted their bus system over to nat gas. Now all of a sudden, nat gas is bad too. Where nat gas burns exponentially cleaner than sure. oil, and not to mention coal. Right, right. These guys are now burning coal and biomass in in many parts in Europe and especially Germany. Now those prices have come down in AVs, but they're still they're still out of this world expensive on a normalized basis. So we just have to get to a point where the political rhetoric side of it dies down and we want to get to, we want to get to solutions. That's why I'm really unoptimistic about the near term future, because I think the only way we get there is when people feel the squeeze of making the wrong decisions. Mm. And that's kind of why we were talking here in the office. I, I think a lot of people have this, interpretation that the energy crisis is over. I kind of see now, I don't know how long this will take, but I kind of see us as being in the eye of the storm. Right. Um, And if you think about it, it makes sense. The dynamics of the underlying issue haven't changed, but we have ammunition to deal with it right now in, in, you know, like IES, the SPRs, right. But those are finite, right. And they're running out as we speak. I mean, it's not like we're sitting there going three years from now, it's going to be a problem. No, no. Six months from now, it's going to be a problem, Sure, right? So you're running out of runway. Mm -hmm. And my fear is you have not yet addressed any of the underlying dynamics that created the problem. You've been putting lipstick on the pig. You haven't addressed any of it. Sure. So as soon as you run out of SPR and as soon as China comes back online, you're going to have another problem on your hands. And I still don't hear anybody talking rationally. Now, this is where I do give credit to Biden, that deal he made with ConocoPhillips, and they're not getting in the way of that production. But you, he still won't say anything about it. Sure. None of his supporters know he just did that. Right. Right. And th- that's what's frustrating me is we need to have somebody. And, and I really think it's we, 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 we need to have a president in this country that will come in with the express desire of fixing things. Sure. Right. Not sticking it to one party, not talking crap about the opponent. Right. Not sitting there blaming fossil fuels, but come in there and go, hey, guys, here's the real deal. Yep. Okay. We have a problem. Yeah, we have a problem, and I'm all about going green, 
but we need to do it in such a way that you don't lose your job in the process. Right. We need to do it in such a way that 100 million people in India don't die in the process. Right. And it's not just virtue signaling either. Right. right. How much right. of that? How much of that conversation is that? I remember when Elon Musk was talking about solar panels on houses and was putting all his technology in, and then people that, in the industry that you knew were asking. How is he even connecting it? How is he getting the power from the solar panels into the house? Like this is yeah. the thing we've been trying to deal with forever. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's not connected. Yeah. It's yeah. literally just, it's, it's just for show. It was vaporware. Right. And so how much of this is, right? Because we're not even talking about the environmental impact that putting solar panels on the ground has. Oh, right. right. I mean, you and I were just talking. I, I watch a show, Yellowstone, which, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know if, you know, your listeners watch it or not. It's a great show. But uh, on Yellowstone, I would I would say the percentage is probably north of eighty, probably high, yeah. yeah. But but in Yellowstone, right, the the main character is talking about uh, you know these solar panels, and yeah. they're talking about sagebrush, and oh, we're we got to save the save the sagebrush, sage grouse, or sage sage grass. Thank yeah. you, yeah. And uh, and yeah, he's he's talking about it and asking the guy, well, what is the <laughs> you're wanting me to save this? He wanted to shut down the two natural gas drilling rigs. Right. Now, just to put this in perspective, guys, a natural gas drilling rig probably does not occupy a total space of larger than 3000 square feet. It's probably right around there. Yeah. Right. So you want, we, we had to get rid of two natural gas drilling rigs because it's bad for the environment, but then they were going to take a 10,000 acre prop piece of land yeah. in the Montana wilderness and cover it with solar panels. And he goes, and with the reason we had to get rid of, rid of drilling gr- grills is because it was endangering the sage grouse. Right. And he goes, well, what happens to the sagebrush on the 10,000 acres? It's like, well, it goes away. He's like, so what happens to the sage grouse? He's like, well, they go away too. And that's where he, right. our favorite line that you and I are both laughing about is when he stands up and he goes, can't remember the guy's name, but let's say it was Ed. He stands up and goes, Ed, you know what, you know what makes me, or you know what gets me the most angry is you're not joking. Right. You're not joking. You're saying this seriously. You're saying this seriously. Right. And, and I, I just felt like that was the greatest non-political assessment of the of the debate we're having right we can't just look at facts anymore no we can't just look at data and say guys this is what the situation is yeah this is what the cost is this is what the impact is everyone has to have an angle somehow it has to be political somehow it has to be one party pushing one thing over the other like you said until we can get away from the the division within these conversations and just actually approach these problems factually with, right factually guys, these are the facts this right. is the data well and acknowledge the cost right right I, i'm not telling you the cost is untenable what i'm telling you is papering a ten thousand square foot area of wildlife or a ten thousand acre piece of wildlife yep. with black panels that has an environmental cost right. guys that has an environmental cost. Right. Or, or the I heard something about the wind farms the other day, that yeah. the amount of animals that it's killing in the environment. Right? Changing migratory patterns of birds. Right. Uh, not to mention that a lot of them are failing sooner than we thought. And so we're not even getting the, the cost. En- we're not even getting the energy out of them that they were promising to begin with. No, no. And so now w- what I do think, though, now to be fair to flip to the other side is that I think that these technologies have come a long way to be a meaningful portion of the grid as a supplementary, right? A, an auxiliary sure. type power. Yeah. So when, when it is sunny, when the wind is blowing, the grid can run off of them. Okay. But at this point, and again, I'll defer to some of our other guys that know more about this, but from my understanding to expect that to represent more than 15 to 25% of the grid right now, it's probably not responsible. Right. Right. And you're going to have, you're going to create bigger issues and bigger problems down the road. So we, we just got to get to a point where we're having rational discussions. And I feel like maybe, 
you know, conversations like this are a start to it of, yeah. of, of first understanding what is the problem? Why are we here? Right. right. How, do, how do we get here in a way that layman terms can understand? It's not experts that are geniuses talking about what they're right. <laughs> right. What, how their perspective, which is needed. Right. We need to hear from those people that know it, what they're talking about, but then also discussing it going, OK, how do we as common people, as laymen, right? Like, this is not my industry. This is not what I do. Like you said at the beginning of the show, right? I run the operations of what yeah, we do. Yeah. That's what I get excited about. Yeah. But when I'm looking at these different industries or different parts of the market, I want to have an understanding. I want to be educated. And I think that's why people listen to this show, right? Is Hopefully. How do, I, how do I learn more so that when I am voting and I am hearing politicians talking about different areas of different industries, I'm able to say, oh, that's not true. That's not right. Or, hey, maybe these solutions that we're putting forward, that actually is a path forward, but people aren't talking about it because they want to talk about these you know, political points or, like you said, score points or, or tear down their opponent. Uh, you know, and I think we got to get back to the place where our politicians are actually serving us, right? They're, yeah. they're actually doing the things that benefit us. Well, and you bring up a really good point. And, th- and this is, I think, one of the tough parts of it is, again, I don't think that we can get there. The reason people believe all of this nonsense is because they can Right. And why can they? It's because the pain hasn't been great enough. Right. It's like we talk about this all the time. People change at the realization of pain, not the anticipation of it. Correct. Right. It's just is the way we are, unfortunately. We only grow when we're uncomfortable. Yes. And hopefully we at Bulwark are not operating that way. (laughs) I'd like to think we're not. But, you know, most people will. And and that's what scares me because, you know, I, I keep using the term third grade diplomacy. Meaning that all too often I see from our government, there's a problem and the solution you hear is literally what you would get out of a class of third graders, right? Uh, we're putting too much CO2 in the air. It's going to ruin the atmosphere. So what do we do? Get rid of, get just, rid of oil. Just companies. turn it off. Get rid of oil companies. Yeah, great. Simple. Get rid of oil companies. Use solar and wind, right? That's an answer you'd get from a third grade, third, uh, a third grade class, right? Right. And I know because I've got a third grader, right? Right. I've got, well, a second and fourth. You average them together there. Sure. Grade. By the way. <laughs> Dollar cost average your kids. Yeah. By the way, my second grader, he made the, uh, <clears throat> he made the regional finals in the spelling bee. Oof. He's, he's slanging it. So now his brother's got something to live up to because yeah. he's on deck for next week. Anyway, that's not about energy. I just got to brag about my kids for a second. <laughs> but no, and, and, but to, so we first have to get to a point, though, where we can have these rational fact-based discussions. And like I was saying, I think we're at a difficult place because I don't see that happening until the pain gets bad enough. Sure. So anyway, uh, anything else that we were going to finish up? Or no, I think that covers it? it, man. I mean, that... that- I, I, I was joking with you. I was like, when we start having these conversations, that's one of the blessings of, of working here. We have conversations like this all the time. It's like, let's just turn the mics on. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. If we have stuff like this where, you know, people are asking questions that are, are, are valid. Right. Yeah. Like I said, from a, a really rudimentary standpoint, you do do a plus B equals C man. Like, Oil price, my gas, my gas, my gas bills over a hundred dollars to fill up my truck every time. They're making record and profit. They're making re- record profit. Dear Lord, guys, turn it down. Yeah, they're gouging us. Right. Yeah. And, and so just breaking down, you know, how it actually works and how it's all structured, I think not only makes us more educated, but man, it really helps us to keep our representatives accountable as well. The more we know, the better off we're going to be able to elect people that actually are going to represent our needs and, and actually help us. I think this is a huge thing for just the common person to gain that kind of knowledge. Knowledge. Yeah. And then also to come to realization that when you say green at any cost, 
it all that means is that you don't understand the cost. Right. Okay, because the cost will be millions, if not hundreds of millions. It's more than you bargain for. Starvation. The other thing, people, we haven't even talked about. Okay, we're going to be dealing with the fertilizer shortages as a result of this energy pinch. We're going to be dealing with probably for at least two to three years. Okay, and that's if things are rectified. Remember when I said that none of the underlying things have been addressed yet? Sure. Right? That's assuming that energy shortages don't, which is possible, right? I'm not saying that, you know, when you're talking about energy, especially oil or any commodity, you can't, you can't point too far out in the future because there are technological advances that come out of nowhere. There are oil finds that come out of nowhere. I'm not saying that it's written in stone, but if you keep pursuing down this path the way they are, you know, I think you look at a guy like Bill Gates and I know that he's not the most loved guy right now for good reason. Um, but, you know, I do think he's an intelligent human being. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to what he's doing and he's investing in, one of his biggest pushes and one of his biggest things he's talking about is nuclear. Why? Because he's approaching the problem from a solutions-based mindset of going, right. how do we really fix this? And I think one of the – and again, regardless of your political allegiance, if we're having this discussion and nuclear is not at the center of it, you're not serious. Right. You're just – you're not serious – you're in child fantasy land. It doesn't work. We don't get there. We've extinguished every other option at this point. Yeah. And then, and then they go, then they go, well, yeah, but that leaves nuclear waste. And I'm like, again, we can find solutions. Everything that. has a cost. You're a, you're acting like 10,000 acres covered in black panels. Doesn't have an environmental cost. Right. You're acting like windmills don't have an environmental cost. They do. Right. Right. You're not looking. And I think that the nuclear byproduct, when you look at what, you know, like we were talking about, we did that math that day and we were saying, look, I'm not saying this is the all-in cost, but when we look at what the cost is to launch a SpaceX rocket or a Blue Origin rocket or whatever into space, and you look at the payloads of those things, that according to our math, and it could be a little off, but it would cost like two and a half to three billion dollars a year to launch all of our nuclear waste into, into outer space. Okay, people are like that's a lot of money, guys. No, two to three bit? Are you kidding me? Right? We just spent seven trillion on on COVID handouts. Right. Two to three billion is a rounding error. Right. Okay. And then you have zero new, I mean, what are we worried at that point? Are we worried about polluting the universe, right? Like, are we worried about giving radiation poisoning to UFOs and aliens? I mean, I, I mean, I think your bottom line is there's solutions we yes, can find. Yes, yes. Right? And I'm not saying that's viable, Sure. right? It may not be, but I'm just saying there are plenty of different things that we can do. And then the other thing people is have a very misunderstanding of how little nuclear waste is actually produced. It's very little. Most of it can be recycled. I it anyway. It's yeah. just it's just a lot of misnomers. And 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 one of the things that you and I were talking about too. It, and we would love to hear feedback about this yeah, interview, please. Because if you guys, if you found this helpful, and there's other things that you would like us to dis- discuss in this way, uh, we'll be happy to do it. And and it was kind of one of those awakening moments for me. We were having the conversation. And I went. Well, shoot, you guys are right, man. If you guys don't know it and you're in the office with me every single day, we probably should break it down in more, you know, not because I don't think the audience is smart enough, but like we say all the time, so many of these conversations are so loaded down with vernacular and esoteric language and all this stuff where if you just break it down to brass tacks, people are like, oh, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. When the beauty is, I mean, when I started working for you way, way back a long time ago now, uh, I had no experience right in the financial industry, except for, you know, the operational side, right? I got hired to help on the operation side because that was what my experience was. But man, I didn't have any clue about finances or how the market worked or how anything. So I've really learned 
from square one. And so I'm not afraid to ask you questions, right? Yeah. When, when things come up or, you know, I'm noticing a trend on, on Twitter of what people are talking about, what, you know, what are people getting dusted up about? And, uh, you know, I really do. I try to follow a really wide variety of people yep. just so I'm getting perspectives from different places yep. and going, what what are people really saying? And, uh, and there's a lot of information out there that of course is going to be skewed, uh, to someone trying to push an agenda. Yeah. And, uh, and that's true on both sides. I'm, like most of the time, right? Like almost all the time. And, and so for me, I, I always want to, my personality, your personality that I really appreciate about you is it's like, I want, I, I don't care about the agenda. I don't care what you're trying to push. I want to look at data. I want to look at facts. You know, I've, I've almost stopped watching the news entirely. I'm, I, you know, I, when I'm, when I'm listening to something that's going on, or I'm reading an article. It's like, man, I want to go find the primary source. I'm going to go watch the actual video. I'm going to read the yeah. court documents, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to listen to experts that have firsthand experience of what happened, right? Like I, I'm so tired of the rhetoric. I'm so tired. Yeah. And so that's the beauty of what these conversations hopefully will yield is let's just, let's, let's wipe away the agenda. We're not trying to convince you to vote for our favorite candidate, right? Like we want to just talk about these issues in a real factual you know, objective way and, and, and try to get to the bottom of the Yeah. Things. Get it outside of the political dogfight and the political food fight too, because that, you know, it just, it just, it just clouds the issue. It increases confusion. It increases division and it just pushes us further and further away from the goal. So, yeah. but we appreciate you listening and this has been a long interview. Yeah, so this yeah it has been. <laughs> I was surprised by the count. So thanks for doing this. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah. It's first time. Well, if we get terrible feedback, this will be my last time. So we'll, well and I, it'll be blamed entirely on you. Oh, this of is, course. Absolutely. This is one of the, one, one of the, for those of you aspiring business owners, one of the number reasons, one of the number one reasons that you want employees is because it's never your fault, right? If somebody, if, if there's a mistake, it's like when, when a trade goes wrong, I don't, I, it's not my fault. It's Matt's fault. Of course. It's a trader. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my fault. So anyway, uh, so yeah, give us the feedback. Let us know if you thought this was helpful. And then also if there's any other topics that you've heard us discuss in the show that you'd like to, uh, uh, us to discuss in this forum, let us know. So anyway, guys, thanks for joining us. Hopefully this helped. Uh, hopefully this kind of illuminated some things. Maybe this is something that if you got a family member or something, you can send this to them and have them listen to it. Um, I just think we're all better off. Like Trevor was saying, regardless of the political aisle, we're all better served if we know what is really going on as opposed to the nonsense we hear out of the media. So anyway, as always, guys, have a wonderful week. We'll be back next week. And then also keep an eye on the on the podcast because we will be dropping that Tracy Shukart uh, interview uh, next week. We're do- we had technical issues today. We're going to do it on Monday. We'll drop it probably Monday night or Tuesday. So uh, anyway, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.